an Ironic Media production. Visit us at I-R-O-N-I-C-K media.com. All right, today on the podcast, I have Mark Gober, and he is so awesome. He has written so many books about consciousness and really does his research when it comes to sharing how it is that I'm able to do the things that I do or other psychics and mediums and how even the government has been using psychics to help them to figure things out. So Mark has definitely done so much research and really is such a joy to talk to. He has written the book, The End to Upside Down Thinking, which was an award-winning book. He also has the podcast, Where Is My Mind? That came out in 2019, which I've listened to probably three times over. He's also written a book called The End to Upside Down Living. Mark serves on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. He is a graduate of Princeton University and is an international speaker. You can learn more about Mark at markgober.com. But for now, here is Mark Gober. Let's get started. Welcome to the Stark Transformation Show. I'm your host, Amy Stark. In this show, I'll be sharing messages of hope, healing, and transformation. I'll teach you how to shift your mindset, conquer your fears, and become the best version of you. You'll hear incredible stories of transformation and about the extraordinary journey I've been on for well over a decade. My connection with energy is so strong and I can't wait to share it with you. Let's get started. All right, today on the podcast, I have Mark Gober, and I am so excited to talk to him. He is what inspired me to do my podcast because I heard his podcast called Where Is My Mind? It's all about consciousness. And I, first of all, I'm kind of a nerd. So I loved all the research that you were citing in your podcast. Mark is just super open to what I do. So that's really, really fun. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Amy. I'm excited to chat. Yeah. So Mark has written a book that's called End to Upside Down Thinking. It basically has all the research that you've done around this aspect of consciousness and even like, why can I feel what somebody else is feeling millions of miles or thousands of miles away and how I do what I do being psychic and things like that. So that's a super awesome book. I've totally highlighted like a bunch of stuff in it. So, Mark, how did you get involved in this? Because you have a business degree, right? You were doing business. That's right. Well, it was never really on my radar as something I was thinking about doing. I was on a very traditional business path, graduated from Princeton, went into investment banking like a lot of my classmates did. This was back in 2008. Worked really hard during the financial crisis, didn't sleep, left New York in 2010 to join a boutique strategy firm advising companies on their technology, their intellectual property, and their overall strategy. So still very much in the business realm. Ended up spending 10 years there, became a partner. But while I was at that boutique firm in 2016, I was listening to podcasts myself. And I wasn't looking for something new, so to speak. I was listening to health podcasts, business podcasts. And at the time, I was actually in not the best place in my life personally. There were some business issues, some personal issues. I had a very traditional view of the world, which is that the universe is random and there's no real meaning to life. And so I had kind of these like existential issues in the back of my mind because I thought that's what science taught us. And in addition to that, my life wasn't going exactly where I wanted it to go at the time. So I was feeling pretty lost. Some might call that a dark night of the soul. I think it fits the pattern pretty well. 
but I wasn't looking for a different worldview at the time. I just happened to stumble across podcasts that, that talked about these topics. And there was one in particular in August of 2016, which in hindsight was a, a very big deal for me. It was a woman named Laura Powers who was on a health show talking about her own psychic abilities and her own ability to work with energy. And she, she had a traditional background before going into this herself, but she ended up advising her clients on all this using her abilities. So I remember listening to that conversation and just being intrigued because she was speaking very seriously from her own personal experience. And what she was talking about did not align with anything I had learned anywhere. <laughs> so I listened to that whole episode, just like I listened to many other episodes. And at the end, Laura talked about her own podcast, which is called Healing Powers. So I said, that sounds interesting. I, I subscribed to it, listened to a bunch of episodes driving from San Francisco to our office in Silicon Valley, which is a long drive traffic. Over a few weeks of listening to that new podcast, I was interested because it was all new stuff and it was people from different perspectives and different life experiences describing a very similar picture of reality. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, it hit me that, wait a second, these people are all talking about a view of reality that is not aligned with anything I've heard before. Wait a second, if they're right about any of this stuff, then maybe I have to rethink my whole life and existence. <laughs> and so that didn't, that was not an overnight shift. It was an accumulation right. of hearing lots of different stories and a little bit of science to make me really question things. And I remember one episode in particular I heard, this was after a few weeks of listening. It was an interview with Paul Davids, who I interviewed for my podcast as well, eventually. But he was also a Princeton psychology major who became a Hollywood producer. He produced the Transformers and had done lots of somewhat mainstream things and talked about how his atheistic colleague died. And they had a conversation before his colleague died saying, look, I don't think there's an afterlife, but if there is, then I'll drop you a line, something along those lines. Oh, wow. So he ended up having, after his colleague did die, hundreds of anomalous experiences that he, Paul Davids, the, the Hollywood producer, he couldn't explain. And mm. one of them included an ink blot where he was home alone in a, I think it might've been a second home or something in New Mexico or somewhere out in the country by himself, left his papers, came back and there was an ink blot on his papers that darked out certain words. So certain words he couldn't read anymore because of the ink. And there was meaning that he could attribute to what had been blocked out. Oh. And he sent the papers to a chemistry lab and had chemists look at it for like three <laughs> years to try to understand the, ink, the the composition of the ink itself, spending his own money. They weren't able to figure out exactly what was going on. And there were many other experiences. So I remember him talking about it and I could tell he was serious that he had looked into this and his worldview was very much rocked as a result of this. So I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, he seems like a pretty smart guy. He's spending his own time and money on this for years to try to figure it out. Ended up writing a book and doing a documentary on it. I combined that with a lot of the other things I had heard. I was pretty shaken up. I'm like, okay, I've got <laughs> so, something might be going on. And if it is, something is happening, then maybe there's a lot beyond what our eyes can see. So I remember kind of like looking around the room. Is there invisible stuff? Something happened to our consciousness when we die that continues in, in a certain way. And that led me to research a lot of science without ever thinking I'd write a book or do anything. Yeah, yeah. You didn't it. seem like the kind of guy that was jumping into this with open arms. Like it was sort of like a shift that happened over time. And you can definitely see that through your podcast and your book and everything that you talked about. I mean, it was just the evidence just got so much that you're like, all right, fine, I will shift, right? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So I gave you kind of the start of the journey, but then it was research from there and it hasn't stopped since 2016. So what did you find out about consciousness? What do you think happens? Like, where is our mind? Like your podcast mm -hmm. says. 
Well, consciousness is difficult to define because it's not something that's physical. Like my laptop, I can define that. It's made of units of matter. We know that from science. But consciousness, what is that? What is it? We know we're all conscious at this very moment. We're having the sense of being alive. We have an awareness. We have a capacity to experience life. So those are all ways of describing consciousness, but I still can't, I can't physically touch it. When I speak of consciousness, I'm talking about this capacity to experience, very abstract. And the question that comes up in science often is, well, how does this abstract thing that we can't touch with our hand, whereas at my table I can touch, how does this abstract thing emerge at all? Does it come out of our brain? Because we know our brain has a lot to do with the way we experience life. We know that from neuroscience. So it must be the case that our consciousness, our capacity to experience also comes out of our body and our brain. And that's one of the big assumptions in science that the brain is what is producing our conscious experience. But it's also one of the big open questions. Hmm. And Science Magazine has said it's the number two question remaining in all of science. And the way they phrase it is, what is the biological basis of consciousness? In other words, how does our body create consciousness? How does our biology make it? And embedded within that question is an assumption that our body and our brain do create consciousness in the first place. They're saying, how does the brain create consciousness? And that assumes the brain does. Right. So that's what a lot of my research challenges. So I say, wait a second, we know that consciousness is not well understood. And many people are assuming that the brain makes it. But wait, what if the brain plays a different role? What if the brain is more like, some would say, an antenna receiver mm -hmm. that is processing consciousness? Some would say it's like a filtering mechanism meaning there's a much broader consciousness out there. And our brain is sort of like a blindfold that shows us a little bit of a sliver of that consciousness, but not all of it. So this idea that I talk about still preserves the idea that the brain's involved in our consciousness. It's just not producing it. It's playing a different role. I remember when you, in your podcast, you talk about consciousness like a stream, right? Like where we kind of dip into it. Right. So the overarching hypothesis in contrast to the mainstream idea in much of science, which says that everything is material, comes from physical stuff called matter. And when you combine those pieces of matter together in a certain way, you end up with biological species that have brains and then consciousness comes out. But consciousness is ultimately coming from physical stuff. So what I say, and many others are saying this as well, is reverse that. Say that consciousness is primary and that everything that we see in the physical world is emerging within consciousness. The way Dr. Bernardo Castro, who's a philosopher in this area, he's described it by saying that all reality is like a stream of water, where water is like consciousness in the analogy. Each of us is a whirlpool within that infinite stream of consciousness, meaning we have a sense of being an individual. We feel like we're separate, but we're fundamentally interconnected as part of this universal stream. So is that how we are able to, I mean, we meaning psychics are able to get information from people, sense remote viewing or help people to heal at large distances or any distance at all. Is that how we do it? Is it through the quantum field or consciousness, do you think? I think it's probably something like that. And, and to use the stream and whirlpool analogy, if we imagine that some of the water from one whirlpool gets into another person's whirlpool, mm. that's like one person's consciousness getting into another person's consciousness. That's like a psychic effect. So this model where we're all interconnected in a stream or some kind of field would allow for things like psychic abilities or energy transfer to exist because we're interconnected within the field. So there is a way to transfer information, to transfer units of consciousness effectively within this interconnectivity. So all of a sudden, these things that mainstream scientists would call paranormal, 
they're not paranormal. They're only paranormal if we assume that normal is consciousness <laughs> comes from the brain. But what if we redefine normal? Mm. That's what I'm aspiring to do because there's just so much evidence for it. Yeah. You've definitely said that it's world changing. What you are talking about, it's going to change medicine. It's going to change technology and many other things that are already taken for granted. Like we believe these things to be true. And you were saying that it's sort of like, I love your analogy about Galileo. He was like, listen, we're not the center of the universe. We actually are rotating around the sun. And then he's like, look through the telescope. And then nobody's like, I'm not going to look through that telescope. And he's like, but if you look through, you'll see. And that's why your podcast is awesome because it's like looking through the telescope. My podcast is looking through the telescope at what, you know, people like myself do. So what you're talking about is not small and it's not easy to talk about it because it is going to change so many different things in science and medicine and technology and things like that. So I really appreciate you talking about it. And like I said, it really inspired me to do my podcast because I was like, if he can talk about it and he is not even experiencing the things that I experienced physically and know with a deep knowingness, then I can do it. If he can use the research and it was a lot of stuff that I knew, but I was so fascinated. I just loved all the stories that you had on there. Specifically, there was one with the man that had the multiple NDEs, the soldier, I believe he was. And just listening to him talk about that life review was pretty incredible over and over and over again. What were your thoughts on that? It's one of the most powerful conversations I had in my interview process and in my research process in general. And the man's name is Daniel Brinkley. He's had four near-death experiences, has written some pretty famous books. But in his four near-death experiences, one, he was struck by lightning, so he was electrocuted. He had open-heart surgery twice, had brain surgery once. And each oh of these gosh. times, his consciousness still existed during that period. He was able to have very lucid experiences, expansive experiences. And yet his body was dysfunctional effectively. So this is mm -hmm. an instance where you have a barely functioning or completely dysfunctional brain and yet a highly functional consciousness, which again suggests that maybe the brain is actually limiting what we experience rather than producing it. So when you get the brain out of the way, all of a sudden you're exposed to the entire stream or more of the stream. And that's what might be happening for many of these near-death experiencers, including Daniel Brinkley. What he talked about in his near-death experience, and this is reported by many other people as well, is reliving his whole life and essentially reviewing what happened. So reliving the experiences that he had and seeing the way in which he impacted people. And he was allowed to do that because he relived the events through the eyes of the people that he impacted. So it's like this one mind of consciousness. Some people call it one mind, one stream. Mm. It switches lenses somehow in the near-death experience and the life review where he was able to become other people and feel the effects of his actions. So he got to feel the loving actions and the unloving mm. effects. And for him, that was particularly intense because he fought in Vietnam. So he got to relive what it was like to be killed. So he got to feel that pain yeah, through the wow. person's eyes. And he also felt indirect effects. So he felt what it was like to be the child who no longer had a father. And... <laughs> When he came back from his experience, like many other near-death experiencers, his whole life was radically changed. Mm. He became much less materialistic. He ended up becoming a hospice volunteer so that in his later life reviews, because he had four of them, and each time he told me he started at the beginning of his life. So the bad stuff he had to relive four times, but he also got to see the relative improvement. So in his later life reviews, he got to see what it was like to be the person dying in the hospice. And looking into Daniel's eyes as the person's dying, and he got to see the way in which he comforted that person as the person's oh, wow. consciousness was transitioning. So was amazing. Powerful. Yeah. What were some other things that were, you felt like really helped to shift your mindset about all this? 
Well, I think in general, hearing people's firsthand experiences and when there's so many of them to actually listen to their voice, like in a book, there's only so much I can do. I can quote someone, but in a podcast Mm -hmm. or something visual, you can see the person's face. You can see the way in which they're changed forever. So the near-death experience is one of those. We sometimes hear about similar things with like DMT trips, certain types of psychedelic trips can induce something similar where people's lives are forever changed because all of a sudden they feel the oneness and to them, there's no denying it at all. Also, many people in states of meditation or what some would call states of enlightenment, Throughout history, we have many instances of people that have gone through uh, an awakening transition, sometimes involving a dark night of the soul. They live and experience this stuff. So that was powerful to me. But then when it's combined with so much scientific evidence, so for example, when I was researching remote viewing and psychic abilities at the U.S. government, the fact that there was a psychic spying program (laughs) where they spent about $25 million over two decades And I was able to find declassified documents that say remote viewing is a real phenomenon, remote viewing being the ability to see something with the mind, but from far away. So when I'm looking at stuff like that and they see the internal documents and I interviewed Russell Targ, who was one of the leaders of the program starting back in the 1970s, to these people, there's no doubt about it. People that have actually studied the science and the people that have been through it themselves that experience these things. So I have a hard time as a rational person saying that all of it's fabricated when I've seen so much. And Mm -hmm. that's been the hardest hitting thing for me is when you put it all together, it points in the same direction, even more strongly in that direction of a universal consciousness, non-local consciousness, and less in the direction of a materialist view that it's all just matter. And that's not even including, you mentioned quantum physics. Mm. aspect of that as well. There also, I talk about this a bit more in my second book, An End Upside on Living, the philosophical aspects of it, which is a really complex topic. But philosophically, it's more parsimonious to say that consciousness is primary rather than the material is primary. Parsimonious meaning philosophically, you can explain reality using fewer assumptions that way, because we all know we're conscious That's known by everyone. But the existence of a world that came before consciousness is an inference. Hmm. So the philosophers like to use Occam's razor. They say the simplest solution is the best, where you you can use the fewest number of assumptions. If we say consciousness is fundamental, we don't have to postulate that there's an entire universe that exists out there that came before. Even though it might, that's an extra set of assumptions. So that's a whole other area which a lot of people have spent time on. And, and when, you, when you really analyze that, to say consciousness is fundamental, that's a simpler solution. In addition to all the other evidence we talked about, to me, it's compelling when you combine everything. Yeah. So there's so many things I want to talk about. <laughs> One is, so if you take that philosophy that consciousness was primary, what does that mean for us? Like, how could that change somebody's life today, knowing that? Well, I'm going to think about what it's done for me personally and people around me to acknowledge that there's meaning and order in the universe, that there's an intelligence behind it and that we're part of that. And that when this body dies, there's a continuation of consciousness that could radically change someone's life to think about to just to recontextualize every aspect of one's life, not to mention things like life review, Mm. where The purpose of our life, at least in part, seems to be to treat other people well and to be challenged by that and to evolve effectively through that process of making mistakes sometimes and also doing well other times. Mm -hmm. That brings a whole new sense of order and meaning to life, just that idea alone. 
Yeah. It's so interesting because I've been doing this for almost 15 or 16 years, something like that. And to me, that has been my belief that we are part of this fabric of consciousness. And I've known about this whole planning of your life before you get here and also the life review. I've been familiar with that for a long time. I'm very familiar with connecting with people from afar and feeling and sensing the things that they've been through and almost having a life review in a way while I'm here. So to me, these things are so natural. The way that I live my life is so much like there is purpose and there is magic. There is awe, like there's a meaning to all of it. And then you get to hear these cool stories about that soldier. He doesn't love the story probably, but he also is fascinated by it as well, which is this like dark night of the soul, but also that's where you find your purpose usually. This duality that is so amazing within the universe. Yeah, that's a really important point. The contrast of dark light that from one lens, darkness and pain and suffering are really bad things because they're uncomfortable, but from a different lens, they can enable growth. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like we can evaluate everything in the universe from a different perspective, depending on the lens that we take. Like if we take a helicopter's perspective, looking down at the world, we can see that each of us is kind of moving through a maze. From that perspective, you can see what's ahead and something to the individual who's in the maze might not understand what's ahead. So one event might be perceived as completely traumatic and it could be traumatic, but from a higher level perspective, it might promote evolution. It is so interesting how they exist with each other. And and they're really just like the same thing. My mind like kind of blows. Like when I think about it, I remember in philosophy classes, I would get my mind wrapped around a concept and then I feel like I would get so close. And then sometimes I just like spring back. I wasn't ready for it yet. And I feel like I'm just not really quite there to really be able to describe that duality in a really concise way. But I feel like they're two sides of the same coin almost, or they're basically the same thing, but I don't really know how to describe that. Well, here's how I try to think about it and the way I describe it is there are different lenses of reality. One lens, which some would call the absolute level of reality. It's a common term in certain spiritual circles. The absolute is the perspective of the full stream of consciousness, the perspective from this singular consciousness, the one mind that we're all a part of. And from that level, there's no distinction at all. There's no separation. There's no Mark. There's no Amy. We're all just part of one stream. Distinction doesn't exist. That's the absolute level. At the relative level, I'm a whirlpool and you're a whirlpool and everyone else is a whirlpool. So we have this sense of distinction within the unity. So the paradox that we're forced to hold, and that's a difficult thing because our brains don't like paradoxes. (laughs) Paradox is that we are individuals and then not individuals at the same time. That Mm -hmm. there's an absolute perspective and a relative perspective, which are incompatible, but they're also compatible simultaneously. And that's how I think about good and evil, light, dark, dark night of the soul, growth. That at one level, like you said, that they're, they're, they kind of don't even exist. There isn't evil. There isn't good. There's no dark. There's no light. But at another level, it very much exists. So there's this a, a story that was told by David Hawkins, who was a spiritual teacher I have a lot of respect for. And I was trying to understand this issue of like, okay, well, if I'm just one, if I'm part of the one consciousness and yeah, there's a life review and, and there's research on reincarnation from the University of Virginia and lots of research on this stuff that we're kind of in an evolutionary cycle. Why does it even matter at all? Because we're just one consciousness and our consciousness is going to continue after this life. Who cares about all the, the craziness in the world? And what his perspective was, because he, he was someone who was a prominent psychiatrist and left the world to meditate for like for years and reach states of enlightenment. But he decided to come back. And he talks about an Indian sage named Ramana Maharshi, who also reached very high states of consciousness. He used to say things like the world that we see doesn't exist. 
<laughs> that's a very it's a very true statement from a certain mm-hmm. level of consciousness mm-hmm. from a very high level near the absolute that's true so what hawkins says is well some people could take that statement the world that we see doesn't even exist they could take that statement and say well i don't care if people are suffering because who cares it doesn't matter there's the world doesn't even exist it's, there's no world there's no me mm-hmm. but at the same time if you're experiencing life from the relative level there is pain and suffering and there is growth and there is evolution and that can be very challenging. So what Hawkins said was to ignore the pain and suffering at the relative level is a spiritual error, even though at some level that pain and suffering doesn't exist. So for him, that's why he decided to come back into the world, even though he was in meditation states of bliss for years, that there is this paradox of understanding that there is no world and yet to engage with it and to acknowledge good and evil and to try to be good. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. So he was meditating in this blissful state for many years, right? And in that meditative state, you're connected to the quantum and you feel that oneness. I've been there. I know what that feels like. It is amazing. But at the same time, we're here as humans for a reason. So we're here to relate and connect and have conversations like this one-on-one or with many. So he was probably realizing on some level he was missing out on that. It almost feels like what we're talking about is that uh, whole understanding of quantum physics, how when you observe something, the thing that's being observed changes. So, And then when you stop observing, it goes back to its other behavior. And I feel like there's something in there about this whole idea of consciousness and connection and things like that. Well, if everything is just consciousness, if we're all part of a stream that is fundamentally not physical that everything that is perceived to be physical is actually just empty space or energy or or something that's not as tangible as we think it is, then it would naturally follow that by shifting the state of the stream, so to speak, shifting the state of consciousness individually and collectively, the material world would be shifting in some way, altering the field through the mind. Right. So I think that's part of it. Yeah. And do you think that we are evolving to be creating more technology because you said how your theories are going to create different technology because of they're redoing they're going to have to redo basically at some point their understanding of what the world is what consciousness is what true medicine is and technology definitely well i think i view this field of consciousness the stream to be of a high level of intelligence if not infinite intelligence because if we look at the complexity of the universe from the tiniest scales looking at atoms and small biological creatures to the macro scale. There's just infinite complexity built into the universe. And if that is the substrate of that complexity is this consciousness, then the consciousness itself has to be of a very high intelligence level. So I think of this stream that we're tapping into using our brain, our body, whatever we're doing, we're tapping into intelligence somehow. And we're bringing forth ways of advancing ourselves as society. And that could be technology, medicine, lots of different things. I don't view the individual as the quote unquote source of that intelligence or creativity. I see the individual as the vessel Mm -hmm. that is tapping into the creativity. And because we're all different and we might have different skill sets and ways of processing information, we might bring forth different intelligence. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. As we were talking, I was thinking about like, so at this point, you do believe in psychic abilities, right? And healing at a distance and things like that. Okay, cool. I also wanted to just mention to the listeners. So one, I was going through all my research before I even met you or found you. I was aware of this idea that organ transplants are another example of how somebody's experience is imprinted on the cells. And then when it's transferred to another person, that information can be felt by the person who receives organ. 
in my head, I immediately went to, oh my gosh, we should be basically wiping these organs free energetically of that imprint because, you know, there are some pretty amazing stories in your book and then on your podcast of these organ transplants. I was reading yesterday, I was looking through your book and I remember you mentioning a older gentleman that got a 17-year-old boy's heart and then this girl that she helped to solve a murder mystery, this nine-year-old girl. I mean, insane, you know, that she got all that information was there. And I've heard about a young boy who fell out of a window and he was going after like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle or something like that. And then the little boy just became obsessed with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles who received his heart. So it's amazing how that energy and information can be transferred to other people. So what do you think the future holds for us? Because like you are definitely a thought leader and a visionary. So what do you think? Thank you for saying that. I I really think of myself as just someone who's interested in these topics. So well, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're getting up there. <laughs> My thinking is that we have to just like when we're growing individually, we can't ignore darkness within ourselves, even though it's unpleasant. We have to process trauma and let it come up and acknowledge that it's there. Mm. I think that exists on a planetary level too. We want to get to the next level. So I, I don't know what's next because I think there is a strong dark force that's opposing the light force and that's forcing the light force to grow. It's stimulating evolution for sure. But there is always the possibility that darkness can consume. We've seen it mm. throughout history where darkness can win. So I, while I want to be optimistic about it, I think we always resting on our laurels is probably not the best way to approach this evolutionary battle, if you want to call it a battle from this relative perspective, that we each have to, in our own way, make contributions. And I think it starts with the individual, with our own individual evolution and clearing our own trauma and becoming more and more spiritually evolved. When I say that, I think I'm talking about it from the lens of that's the nature of reality. We are inherently spiritual beings in a spiritual reality, temporarily inhabiting a body. And we're here to evolve our consciousness, which thereby evolves the collective. It's like a sea level. All boats are lifted when the sea level rises. Mm -hmm. So we're all doing that individually. And I guess that's where I think things are going, is that we're going to have to evolve spiritually. And that will manifest through better treatment of each other, better treatment of animals, better treatment of the planet, et cetera, a greater sense of awareness for everything around us and prioritizing those things over just prioritizing material things. Mm -hmm. I think there will have to be a spiritualizing, I guess that's a way to put it, of, <laughs> like of the that. planet, <laughs> if we want to turn it into a verb. I think that is the only way, as, as I see it right now, from a high-level perspective. Because if mm. we don't, if we do the inverse, this materialist perspective, which I grew up in, and that's the way I thought life was, is you get an education, you make money, you get married, have kids, take care of your kids, then you die. And that's kind of it. There's no purpose beyond that. That perspective is not doesn't lead to a holistic way of thinking about one's life. And when you do that on a collective level, when enough people are thinking in such a nihilistic way, which is what I think our education system is promoting subtly, we're going to be in trouble because ultimately selfishness and greed and really dark stuff can emerge in certain cases. Unless we transcend that, we're going to be in trouble. Yeah. It's amazing. I was working with somebody recently who has been a nurse for 30 years and She's been in extreme back pain for a long time. And she, as I was working with her, she's like, nobody's ever talked to me about this kind of stuff. And I can feel what it is that you're doing. And when you bring up stories and things like that, I, I had no idea my body was actually holding on to that trauma. I'm moving forward in my life with that trauma until I release it. And so I think the more that the medical industry can start to adopt this understanding that the cells have memory and we need to help release this trauma so that the energy can flow more 
clearly and fluidly through the body to create more ease within the body, actually. Then I think we'll start to be on our way to this shift that you're talking about, which I've heard many thought leaders talk about where there's this tipping point, right? Where if enough people do their work, it was it Stephen Hawkins or David Hawkins. I always get confused between the two of them who said the scale of consciousness. David Hawkins. Yeah, David Hawkins, right. Um, Stephen Hawkins was super brilliant as well. So that's why I get them confused. So he was just saying that the scale of consciousness is going to help create by everybody doing their work. Eventually, they influence other people around them to do their work and shift them in ways that are useful for the whole planet. And and you can see, I mean, my son goes to school and he's learning about meditation. And obviously, I work with him about that stuff and he understands energy healing and things like that. So I think what's great about kids is they're so open to this shift and they they have such practical ways and it hasn't quite yet been beaten out of them that they shouldn't be a certain way for some populations for sure. But I think I'm in Boulder, so Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're a little bit more woo-woo out here. It's nice that they are given the space to express themselves and take the time to really think about how they're treating people and giving them the awareness that emotional intelligence is important because that's not really talked about. Yes. I think the whole education system will need to evolve to account for this other factor, this this fundamental aspect of the universe, consciousness. And like you said, it's going to affect medicine and how we think about healing. I, I think there is a place for allopathic medicine, of course, but there's also a place for holistic medicine and integration of all this and to think about the energetic aspects and the psychological aspects, how or how psychological trauma, as you were saying, can manifest as physical illness. That's something that's not widely acknowledged in much of mainstream medicine. So yeah, I think we're going to have to shift into a more holistic perspective throughout all aspects of society. And if we can, then I'm very optimistic because we've lived with a lot of darkness on the planet and what some would call ignorance, this idea that we're ignorant as to our true nature. And much of the planet has been living in that state. And imagine what we could do if we removed the veil or lifted the veil. Mm. That's a very optimistic perspective if we can get there. Yeah, I like in your book, you talk about, I can't remember who it was, but one of the speakers that you interviewed said, yeah, we have to just change this idea of what is normal. If everybody talked about how they can sense who answers the phone you know, or who's on the other end of the, the phone calling them or when they think about somebody, there's a real connection there, a correlation. You know, if more people talked about those things that happen in their life, like I, it's funny, you know, some people will come up to me because I'm obviously open to it. They're like, I have to tell you a story, you know, about when I had a dream and then somebody came to me and they had just crossed over or something like that. If we all were talking about that, then I think we would think this is a lot more normal. But I think because it hasn't been valued, it isn't talked about that much. Any other thoughts you have on all this? I think in addition to not being valued, there's even a taboo against it, especially Mm -hmm. in the academic community where scientists who want to study these topics have to worry about how much they talk about it because they might not get tenure. I'm actually on the board of directors at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is an independent institute studying the reality of psychic phenomena scientifically. And there's some brilliant people there in a mainstream academic environment, they wouldn't be able to study those topics. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a new openness somehow, both in the education system, I think also in the media, there's a general taboo against a lot of this. So I don't know exactly what it will take. I think maybe it's a critical mass or a tipping point at some level. Why, if there's so much evidence, Are these things not accepted? Is it simply that people are so rigid and they don't want to give up their belief systems? Or are there other factors where there are certain people that would prefer that we live in a state of ignorance 
for mm-hmm. example, and we'll right. make it more difficult for the media to get these messages out. And so we have like on Wikipedia, many of the scientists that I quote, their bios talk about how they're pseudoscientists. Like, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of Dr. Rupert Cheldrake, for example. He's a former Cambridge biochemist. He's done really good science. I interviewed him for my podcast. The first sentence of his bio on Wikipedia says that one of his theories is pseudoscience, something to that effect. So if you're just a casual reviewer and you go to the Wikipedia page, that's the first thing you see. It's going to take a long time to overcome that. And also on his Wikipedia page, there's a little lock symbol, meaning, meaning it's a semi-protected bio, meaning it's more difficult to change the information on it. He also, his TED Talk was blocked and his TED Talk was all about challenging the materialist perspective and looking at consciousness in a different way. There are hurdles that mm-hmm. make it more difficult for the ideas to get out there. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that. The blocking and censoring is ridiculous. Yeah, I really like that you are exploring that idea of this darker force that we might have to overcome because a lot of people like don't want to look at that. But it is there. It takes so much effort to not look at that darkness, like to hold it off, to know that it's there, that you're going to have to deal with it. I just see that usually in people's energetic field, if there's that element of a darkness, it just takes so much effort to hold it off that it's better just to take a look at it and then accept it and then deal with it and do whatever it is you have to do with it. It has been so awesome talking to you. Do you have anything else you want to say? Because I definitely want everybody to find you at markgober.com and buy your books because they're awesome. But is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, thank you for having me, Amy. It's been delightful chatting with you. I love speaking with people that are on the same page. It's just always cool for me to do that. When I first started this journey, I didn't realize other people thought this way. Yeah, me either. <laughs> and, then now, and now I've discovered so many people that have known about this and have experienced way more than I have. But I would leave your audience with the question that I start my second book with, which is, what is the overall intention of your life? And the whole book, In End Upside Down Living, explores the answer to that question. So what's the nature of reality? What can we glean from a lot of the science? And how do we think about it philosophically to direct our compass for living? Because to me, the world has a collective compass that's oriented in the wrong direction. When I say wrong, I mean literally not aligned with the nature of reality, that it's just so far off base collectively, not every single person. So as we individually shift our compasses and think about what is the intention of my life, what is the overall picture that is going to drive all my values and priorities? To me, that's the most fundamental exercise any of us can do. So in in my second book, I lay out what the overall intention of my life is, which I can summarize very briefly because there's a lot more to it. But I say the, the overall intention of my life is to perfect myself so that I can be a pure vessel for this intelligent one mind, which thereby allows me to serve without obstruction. So there's this perfection of the individual self, which allows us to serve. It's this, this duality. There's a self and then serving the self and then serving the whole. That's how I think about it, in addition to a lot of other things. But I would encourage your audience just to think about that question. Yeah, I that's a great question. And definitely, I love the way you put it, because we all have a unique gift. And the more that we refine who we are, we really start to show up even more and then consequently affect other people around us. Go back to education, you know, where kids are only, <laughs> I love Albert Einstein. And I was just talking about this with my son. He said, if you told a fish like how to climb a tree or whatever, it would think it was stupid. And that whole quote, you know, kids nowadays have so many unique qualities and they aren't appreciated. They're supposed to be in this box, like math, science, reading, whatever. And if they're not good at one of those things, then they're not good at anything. And I feel like in the future, we're going to be really capitalizing on their strengths, or at least I hope that we will be looking at this divine intelligence that they're bringing into this world and where they fit into the fabric of consciousness. And that will be so beautiful. 
yeah, an analogy there is that we're like pieces of a puzzle and we all fit in different ways to the overall puzzle, but we contribute in a unique way. It's our journey to be the best version of that puzzle piece, basically, and to embody that fully and to be fully authentic in that space. Yeah, I think it was a bicycle. <laughs> I think he said if a, you teach a fish uh, how to ride a bicycle or something like that. Anyway, Albert Einstein's great. I love him. And Mark, I love you. I'm so grateful for you and having you on the podcast. And actually, is there ever going to be a season two? Where's my mind? That is a good question. I don't know. I, okay. I hope at some point, but it's very difficult to make those podcasts. Oh, I know. I can imagine. I, <laughs> I was listening to it. I was like, wow, I can't even imagine how long one episode would have taken. Yeah. So the way, for, if your listeners are not familiar with my podcast, Where Is My Mind? It's an eight episode series where I'm speaking with my friend who's a podcast producer and he works in media. He used to do work at Fox Sports and he's somewhat newer to these topics, but I've known him for a long time and we are having a conversation basically. And there's music in the background and I spliced in clips from the dozens of people and scientific researchers, et cetera, that I interviewed. So we might be talking about telepathy and I'd say, oh, well, I talked to Dr. Rupert Sheldrake and then there's a clip from him. Mm -hmm. So we had to splice in all the clips from the people that I talked to in addition to building the script and all of the editing that goes into the audio aspects of it. So if, if we come up with something that's worthy of a second season that we're able to do, we have the time and ability to do it. I would love to, but as of mm. now, there's no plan for it. Oh man, I've been waiting for a year. <laughs> <laughs> all right, good to know. Well, Mark, thank you. Are you on Instagram or Facebook? I know you're on Facebook a lot more. Yes, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. If you look up Mark Gober or Mark Gober author, you should be able to find it. Yeah, and visit his website, markgober.com. All right, Mark, thanks so much for being on the show and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Amy. Same to you. All content provided by Amy Stark and or her guests on the Stark Transformation Show, website or other platforms, including text, images, audio or other formats, are created for informational purposes only. Always seek the advice of a physician or qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition. Amy Stark is not a doctor or a therapist.